When I was in high school, there was a cartoon that came out that was targeted specifically for boys in high school. Um, it's about four elementary school kids in Colorado, and they are very profane. Um, the show is still on the air. It's called South Park. I don't know how many sermons I've ever included discussions um, of South Park. If you haven't seen it, it's okay. Um, I wouldn't encourage you to, to check videos. But there's this one scene that's really important. Um, it's pretty early in the show, and they have there's a wrestling match that's being announced. And so it's like a normal wrestling match voice. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Jesus versus Satan, live on pay-per-view. And so it's a, it's a wrestling match between Jesus and Satan. And Jesus in the show is this kind of scrawny, pasty white guy with like a beard and it's just like a little hippie. He's like, oh man, life is great. Are you so nice? And Satan is this giant. His legs are like two inches long and it's like all upper body and lats and just like this huge. He's a, like a beast red with horns and it looks like he was going to clobber, just clobber Jesus. And the way they do it in the show actually is. Um, they get in the battle and they do the whole thing and they're in a ring and they're they're running around and Jesus is just being Jesus-y and nice and I'm not I'm gonna turn the other cheek because I'm not gonna do it. And um, Satan eggs him on over and over again until eventually Jesus goes like, eh, and then Satan just falls falls on the ground and he throws the fight. And so he throws the fight in order because he bet on himself that he would lose. And everybody else bet that he would win. Um, so that's that's the show, but it's I think it's a good example of how often we think of what power looks like. What does power look like? And so often it looks like the big bulging muscles. It looks like, like the beast who's going to take over. It looks like the one with the largest weapon, the person with the most money, the one who's going to conquer. That's what power looks like. And so you see this, this contrast between this literal beast and this scrawny, little white guy, and it looks like, who's going who's gonna to win? Of course, it's going to be the, the giant red thing. Um, but that's not how power is portrayed in the New Testament. That's not how power is portrayed in the Gospels. It's very, it's very different. In the Gospels, what is interesting is that the images in Scripture is not of overflowing power and muscles. They never describe the muscles of Jesus or of Peter, right? There's not this, this long description. It's not like this wasn't important in the ancient world. 150, 200 years before Jesus' time, there was the Jewish revolt against the Seleucid Greeks. And Judas Maccabeus, who was this great warrior in the whole Hanukkah, is based after the Maccabean revolt. But he was, he was held up as this great hero of the people. He fought off the, the evil colonia colonizers. And, and that, was, that was so great. People thought the zealots came out of this. And they were like, we need another Judas Maccabeus. And that's what we were looking for. But Again, in the New Testament, you don't find another Judas Maccabeus. King David was another name that was thrown about as a great warrior. People didn't lift up David because he played the heart, unfortunately. They lifted him up because he won great battles. Saul fought his thousands and David his ten thousands. He was lifted up. The Romans, who were the conquerors of the day, theories go that why, why Rome started conquering everything. Why this small provincial town in central Italy that had nothing remarkable about it. Why did it start taking over the world? And one of the theories is that the honor of victory was so powerful that it was the only way Roman men could prove themselves. So they had to go find battles to fight so that they could, they could prove their strength and victory. And they ended up just beating everybody and just kept on winning. But that was it. They wanted, they wanted to prove how strong they are in battle. 
Okay, this is very different than what goes on in all the New Testament and different from this really strange passage from Revelation 12, which I bet you've never heard in church before. Um, <laughs> the only reason you would read it is if you were doing a study of Revelation or you decided to read through the whole thing or one of those random, like, you're in a hotel, you open a Gideon's Bible, and you just turn to a page. Um, so it's not, it's not the most uh, transparent passage. There's a lot going on. But one thing is clear that's going on is struggle. There's a struggle going on. There's conflict. There is an enemy. Humans, human existence does not lack for enemies. Cosmic reality, talking about the heavens and angels and dragons and all these, it doesn't lack for enemies. But as, as my teacher Stanley Harawas said, cosmic struggle sounds like a video game middle class children play. It doesn't sound like... We, we don't go to church because we seek a safe haven from our enemies. We go to church to be assured that we have no enemies. Who would hate us? Who is, who is our enemy? It is easier to imagine when Jesus tells us to love our enemies that we don't have any, any enemies, and so we don't have to pray for anybody like that. We just pray for our friends. It's so much simpler to imagine. Who would hate me? I don't want to be contentious. I don't want to be going around labeling people my enemies. That's so rude. That's so rude. I don't want, it's so hard to be a Christian now for me because I don't have any enemies to pray for. Ugh. But, I mean, I, be, I bet you some people have thought that when you read that passage, you can't, well, who am I going to pray for? When we see the book of Revelation with this powerful imagery, we see that there's a conflict going on, and it's not a minor one. There are consequences to this conflict. Any story you read, anything you watch on TV, any reality TV show is going to have a conflict. That's what drives the narrative forward. That's where an identity is revealed. And not all conflict is violent, though there is a lot of it. I remember, it reminds me of a, a Teddy Roosevelt quote that is almost on every man's Facebook page that says, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives violently, valiantly, who errs and comes short again and again because there is no effort without error or shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who actually gets in it. And it's not just standing back and observing and critiquing what is going on, but actually addressing reality. Conflict is scary, not just violent conflict, but conflict in general. We have a generationally an avoidance of conflict, as I've mentioned before, that because what happens when, when two ideal ideologies, two people have conflict, there's going to be a change going on. You, someone is going to change, you're going to go your separate ways, but the status quo will not stay the same. We see, again, in the book of Revelation, in this strange chapter 12, the status quo is not staying the same. The book of Revelation is about our identity. It is about who, what is the source of our identity. How can, we be, how can we understand what our identity is? And we see in this strange chapter that the source of the identity is something very familiar to many of you. It is the central words of the Eucharistic liturgy. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. I think Revelation 12 is one of the most powerful arguments against reading the book of Revelation as this consistent 
chronology because it is really hard not to see this chapter as something that has already happened. We see in these strange words the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus. It all takes place here. It takes this incarnation and transposes it on this cosmic scale. Instead of just focusing in on the small village in Bethlehem, we get to see from all of reality looking down on what is changing. What is changing here? We still have this narrative on top of narrative on top of narrative. We still have all these images. We have diadems and dragons and, and stars. We have a fleeing into the wilderness. We have a war breaking out in the heavenlies. We have Michael and his angels, which is such an important word. You know, Greek had a lot of words for soldiers. There's a lot of different words for soldiers. An angel is a messenger. Angel doesn't let someone know if you say the word angel. It's the someone who brought you the note. It's not the person with the sword. But that's what God sends to fight these, these fallen ones. They, don't, they, are, they are not challenged by soldiers of heaven. They are challenged by messengers. Messengers of peace, messengers of hope. I want to continue more talking about these images because they're so important. And when you read Revelation, if you ever flip it out, open when you're at a hotel and the Gideon Bible's there and you're like, what is going on here? And all of these allusions and images, most of them refer back to the Old Testament in some way. The dragon refers to passages in Exodus 7 and Deuteronomy 32, as well as Job 7. And, and Jeremiah, at the end of Jeremiah, there's a, a description of the one who devours the vulnerable that many think is also being alluded to here. We see Michael being described in Daniel 10 as a prince of the angels and as an archangel in Jude 9. And the woman, again, I, I think is really Mary, the woman mentioned here. But there are three other interpretations that people have, have historically had for this this woman described here. Some have thought her as the people of God in general. Others as the Jewish community and others as the church. But it is layer upon layer of images. You cannot extricate these images from the context coherently. They are not placed here in a one-to-one -one linear relationship with some future timeline. They are illustrations of the power of God. To see them as illustrations instead of chronological future predictions does not lessen their power or does not lessen God's power. It only lessens the power of the false teachers who think they have it all figured out and they can predict the time or the hour. The teachers who did not listen to Jesus when he said, you shall not know the time or the hour. Jesus specifically telling us we cannot predict when he will come again. We cannot find, there's no code to look for. We're missing the point if we are looking for a code, because that is giving us an excuse to not love our neighbor. That is giving us an excuse to not love our enemies. Instead, we can think about, oh, we're going to be all right in a while, so we can do what we want now, because that's when we need to worry about it. In John Milton's poem, Paradise Lost, which I'm sure all of you read this week, it's great. Um, it's 12 books of epic poetry. It's actually, it's fantastic. I would encourage everybody to read it. Um, I will read it with you if you would like to. It's one of my favorites. Um, but it's really fascinating. It starts off, the beginning of the poem is in hell. And it's this, this um, sat satanic parliament, which there was a satanic parliament in the 17th century. And so they precursed a lot of things going on nowadays. But um, it's a joke. You laugh. <laughs> and so they have all the devils coming together. And they describe them. And they, they look a lot like, the descriptions sound a lot like even in South Park, what the devil looks like, and they're really strong and powerful. And some people have read Paradise Lost and think, oh man, I really sympathize with that devil guy. He's really interesting. And that was the point 
that was Milton's point, is that like, devilishness is tempting. It's tempting to empathize with the devil. They're powerful. They're, they're decisive. They, they do things. And so it can be interesting. You can, you can deceive yourself into thinking, that is what I should be. That's what I should aspire to. But the poem beautifully deconstructs this image of evil and shows how, how incipient it is and how it, it devolves into just infighting and pride and ends up destroying itself. And it's ultimately not that powerful. There's a line that says Jesus did not use half his strength to defeat the devil. Jesus and Satan don't stand on the same playing field. It's not a fair fight in reality. That's what's, what's shown in the book of Revelation, is that the conflict is not this fair fight. Jesus is not on equal footing with the devil. The powers of wickedness and the power of God is not on equal footing. God does not seek balance in the world between good and evil. God is not like a Jedi master trying to make sure there's balance in the force. That's not the point. There is no balance when there is evil in the world. There is only balance in the light and love of God. Darkness and wickedness and evil and the devil, they all suck up life. They suck it up and they destroy it and they absorb it. And they tempt us with these, with these visions of, of power and, and independence apart from love. The ambition cannot be contained or sustained, yet it does not stand on equal footing with the God who is love. In this Gospel of Mark, when Jesus sleeps through the storm, Jesus doesn't sleep through the storm because he is um, aloof from the issues of his disciples. He's not indifferent to the worries of his disciples. He realizes the storm has no power over him. The storm is ultimately not a threat. But the disciples are so worried, they're like, come on, it's, it's a big storm. Jesus, haven't you seen a storm before? And Jesus, you know, he wakes up and he's like, okay, calm, seas, calm. He still rebukes the storms even when he thinks his disciples are silly for being afraid. But he shows us, he reveals again that he is not a victim of the powers of this world. Jesus is the Lord of all creation. Jesus is the Lord of those storms. He calms the storms. Jesus and the devil do not stand on equal footing. The book of Revelation is not about the end of days. It's really not. It's not about the end of time, but about how brokenness, tragedy, and disease, these will all come to an end. It's an end for that time. It's an end for the brokenness of this world. And that is an end that we can begin to live into and experience today at this table when we share this meal together. Is it an end that we can experience in the concrete practice of loving our enemies? And we love our enemies because Christ is victorious. We wish the best for our enemies because Christ is victorious. Again, we may think that we do not have enemies, but that is only because we are deceiving ourselves. In this world, when we have relationships with people, we have enemies. Our enemies may not be out to destroy us or kill us, but they may just be people who wish us ill or people who irritate us or people who, when they call us or text us, we do not reply, no matter what. <laughs> For each of us, there are some people in our lives who have done detriment to us, who have hard, hurt us. And it may not be intentional, it may not be vindictive, but we feel it and it hurts. And we don't really want to see them again. And we would be fine if we never ran into them at H-E-B 
ever again. That would be good. Okay, I want to do a little exercise here. And Jamie's not here, um, but she taught me this. This is really great. So um, I want you all to close your eyes. I'll close my eyes too, so if you want to keep your eyes open, that's okay, I'm not watching you. Right. <laughs> I want you to breathe in, do a deep breath. Breathe in with your nose, out with your mouth. Okay, I want you to imagine someone in your life who you love very much. Now I want you to think the best for them. Pray for the best for them. Now I want you to think about someone whom you barely know in your life. Now I want you to pray for the best for them. We need another deep breath, so breathe in with your nose, out with your mouth. I want you to think about someone who irritates you, who just bothers you, who, you know, you may not really have it against, but you just don't really want to go to the party when they're there. So I want you to think about that person, who that is, and put an image in your mind. And then I want you to pray for the best for them for blessings for their life. Okay, another deep breath. This is a tough one. Now I want you to imagine someone whom you never want to see again in your life. That who you would be so happy if they never interact with you again. Who is really your enemy? Someone who has hurt you someone who has harmed you. And we need to pray for the best for them. Pray for their blessings. That may not include you being in their life. It doesn't have to. But that they receive blessings. We pray for our enemies not because we are so awesome. I am not so awesome as to make that an easy thing to do. I don't think many of you are. We pray for our enemies not because we want them to win, but because we realize it's not a competition for blessing in this world. It's not a zero-sum game. Because Christ is victorious, our despisers cannot win. So we seek their blessings. We seek the best for them because what is truly best and what truly comes from God is only life and not darkness. We lift them up to God because God has won the victory. The despisers will not win. We, we do not come here as people without enemies. There is conflict in this world. You see it any time you turn on the news, you turn on your computer. You see conflict all over the world. You see conflict in this country. You see conflict in our area. You see people whose lives are being torn apart. We each have people in our lives who are struggling with brokenness, with tragedy, with addictedness, with all, addictedness, with all sorts of conflict. But our hope is not in the brokenness itself. Our hope is not in a charismatic leader with bulging muscles who's going to come in and clean shop. Our hope is not in overworking ourselves 
or, or, or willing ourselves forward to victory. Our hope is in the Lamb who is slain, who sits upon the throne and offers us life. Christ does not offer us the power of Satan. Christ does not offer those big guns and biceps and all the power and money of the world. That's what Satan offers. Remember in the temptations in the desert. That's what Satan offers to Jesus. Here, here's all the money. Here's all the kingdoms of the world that can be yours. God does not offer us that, but something much more. God offers us love. God offers us mercy. God offers us a life where we don't have to compete with the people who have hurt us. Where we are validated and honored apart from our past. We are validated and honored apart from where we are from or what we have been, but because of who we are as beloved children of God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.